From Thanksgiving to Christmas, church, here we are, all right? It began on Thursday last week. They call it Gray Thursday, that, that time between when you eat your turkey and you're ready to start shopping. Have you heard that? Gray Thursday. What comes next? Black Friday. What comes next? Small Business Saturday. Oh, you missed that one? Because you were in church. Ah, what comes next? No Clever Name Sunday. What comes next? They got it. Cyber Monday. Yes. Next. Giving Tuesday. That's for the charities, the nonprofits. If you missed that, we are here. We are right here. And you heard Steve say earlier, we are $144,000 short. Oh, did you catch the number? Yeah. That was Giving Tuesday. What comes on Wednesday? I call it Weeping Wednesday. What comes on Thursday? Therapy Thursday, it's followed by Forgiveness Friday, and now Sabbath rest. Here we are. That week between Thanksgiving and Christmas, Advent, here we are. So last week in the grocery store, Wednesday afternoon before Thanksgiving dinner, I don't know why, but we ended up there. We were looking for something. When we checked out, the cashier said to my daughter and I, did you find everything you were looking for? And we said, not really, but it's okay. Well, what were you looking for? We were looking for mulling spices. He said, what? You know, mulling spices, what you put in your cider to make it taste like Christmas. You know, a little bit of, say, a, a little bit of, uh, not sage, a little, a little bit of pepper. It does have peppercorn and it has cloves and cinnamon and allspice and actually has some orange rind and cinnamon sticks and, you know, mulling spices. He said, I've never heard of it. Well, we asked your manager, you usually carry it. You're out of it now. You'll have some by Christmas. So we just grabbed some spices instead, you know. So we'll make our own thing. Scans our spices. He looks up at us again and says, so you really did get everything you were looking for, right? <laughs> we looked at each other, my daughter and I, like, we don't, is this a test? I said, I mean, not really, because you didn't have everything, but we did the best we could do. So he scans our things, puts them to the side. He's, let me ask again. You're going to put all these spices together, and it's going to make your, your cider tasty. We said, yeah. You kind of got everything you were looking for, I think. <laughs> we're like, well, not really, but what in the world is going on? There must be a contest for cashiers, like if they can please all their customers. He put all, everything in our bag and said, yeah, I'm so glad you came here today. He looks over his glasses underneath his beanie. You did get everything. <laughs> like, who are you? <laughs> we didn't get everything we were looking for. It's easier to tell these little holiday cheery stories than to tell the big story in Matthew chapter 2 that begins with the sentence, during the time of the rule of King Herod. Because the first sentence of the story scares us all. During the reign of King Herod says everything. This is Herod the Great who's on duty when Jesus is born, but his family's been ruling for 150 years, and every one of the Herods are bad news. During the time of King Herod, 
Every song you sang and played today, that's the scene, that's the stage during the time of King Herod. You did sing Gloria, Siest Noel, sing for joy this Christmas day, the sounds of Christmas still to come after this talk, right? None of those songs will mention King Herod. But King Herod is the background for everything we sang and heard today. It's the background for all the music from last night from the university's candlelight concert. If you missed it, today at 4.30, there's a, a second rendition. King Herod is the background for all of this large tale. It's easier to tell kind of the fun, small Christmas anecdotes than to lean into this. When King Herod was the ruler, something went down. King Herod. Herod the Great, what's his thing? He's been on the job 30 years or a little more by the time Jesus is born. King Herod builds things, that's one thing he does. He builds the temple. Temple's gigantic. From north to south, they tell us that, that just that outer courtyard of the, the, the temple Herod built, just that outer courtyard is five football fields from north to south. Three football fields, east to west. It's not on flat ground, it's built into the rock there in the side. Part of the temple there is that wailing wall we like to go and visit when we travel to Jerusalem. Huge pieces of rock, two and five ton blocks, mortarless walls built with these blocks. If you were to move inland a little ways, an hour, hour and a half, think of going from Riverside out to Newport. Think of Newport. Herod built a port. He looked at Caesarea Mary Time and said, we're gonna make a thing out of it. And there, they, they think that maybe he collaborated with the Italian architects uh, and engineers, where they did some underground fortifications, some kind of hydraulic cement system long before hydraulics. My husband last night asked me, how is that possible? That's what a scientist would say. I said, I don't know, I'm just reading the history book. I mean, that's amazing, he does this, he puts a stadium on top of it, because Herod builds things. He creates Caesarea into the largest port serving the area. And out of this, he creates cities and roads and infrastructure and, and all that we need for a working society. Out of all of this, Herod creates citizens and taxes and peasants who are good for something for Rome. Out of all of this, Herod works for Rome. While he's busy building things, he's also busy destroying things, though. We have to tell the whole truth. Herod doesn't really care who you are. Warriors and workers or resistance fighters, that's all right, he'll kill you. It doesn't matter if your mamas and children and households, Herod will kill you. If you get in his way, Herod will kill you. He's not much of a family man either. One scholar says that King Herod makes King Henry VIII look merciful and monogamous. He kills wives or exiles them. He kills his sons or exiles them. This is Herod the Great. If we know none of this about Herod, though, and we only had the information in our Bible in Matthew 1 and 2, we would already know Herod's trouble. There are four dreams in the beginning of Matthew, four dreams that warn the people, stay clear of Herod the Great. Bad, bad news. So this, this is who the Magi visit. The prestigious guests come from a country in the east. They're following a star. They ask for an appointment with Herod the Great. They sit down. 
when Herod gets these three travelers in front of him, they ask, they ask him, actually, uh, we would like to know uh, the star and the one who's to be born. Could you tell us where to go? There's something terribly wrong with this picture. Herod the Great, three prestigious guests from a neighboring territory, three prestigious guests, intelligence offers, officers probably from neighboring governments, three wise, rich guys sitting in front of Herod. Where's the newborn king? We've seen his star in the east, Matthew 2.2 2 says. The newborn king of the Jews. It's unfortunate in the original language in the Greek there, it's actually the, not the newborn king of the Jews, it's of Judea, the region. And that mistranslation caused generations and centuries of, of friction between the early Jews and Christianity. It's, it's not where's the king of the Jews, where's the king of Judea, this place, this earth, this space, these people, this economy, you know? Where's the leader of you all? The three wise me men from the east ask the king, where's the leader of you all? Catch it? Catch it? It's a direct challenge. High treason, it's political suicide. Some say maybe it's simply political parody. Let's see how much King Herod can take. We saw the star, we're coming for him. Where, where is the one? The, the storyteller tells us that King Herod heard all of this and he's deeply disturbed and so all of Jerusalem is disturbed. As Herod the Great goes, the people go. When Herod's upside down, the people are upside down. When Herod is irritable, the people become anxious. Herod has the whole story by the tail. He calls together his Bible teachers. He asks them, um, hey, can you tell me where this guy's supposed to be born? Well, yeah, the prophet Micah said a thing about Bethlehem. So Herod tells the wise guys, go to Bethlehem. It's this dusty little city. Just go over there. When you find him, come and let me know because I'd like to worship him too. Wink, wink. Yeah, when you find him, come back and tell me. It's amazing to me that the intelligent leaders from the east actually take that bait. They're going to look for kind of a no-name, uncredentialed baby in a dusty little village, and off they go. And they leave King Herod disturbed in his own hometown. They just go a few miles south to Bethlehem. They leave Jerusalem, this self-important city, and they go to Bethlehem this, for a moderate, modest promise. We have to give Herod credit in this story for recognizing trouble when he sees it. Give Herod credit for knowing something is up this night. Herod gets credit for knowing something's loose. There is a king and there is a rival. Both will not survive. This is our story for the whole month of December, all of these weeks of Advent. There is a king, there is a rival, both of them cannot survive. Now when the Gospel of Luke tells the story, there's also already a leader. It's the son of God called Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And Luke takes off with shepherds in the field and the baby in the manger and angels who sing peace on earth and everything's rosy. People call Matthew's Gospel kind of the adult version of the story. 
Oh, because when Herod hears what's, gone, what's happened and the Magi fall and worship Jesus, Herod gives an order to kill all the baby boys in the kingdom. Because if that one's alive, he wants him dead. It's the adult version of the nativity story. The Magi find the baby. Herod's outraged. He gives the order. Jesus' family leaves town because they're afraid. They head to Egypt. And that sounds a little familiar in the family history because they've been to Egypt generations before. And Herod is simply the new pharaoh of the story. Herod the Great. He takes up all the oxygen in the room, friends. Any version of Jesus' birth story sets us up for a great conflict tale. We can read from Luke. We can read from Matthew. It simply doesn't matter. If Jesus is Lord, Herod is not. If Jesus is Lord, Herod's ways of ruling are also not. If Jesus is Lord, everything changes in the story. Herod, this great, paranoid, suspicious, notoriously cruel, violent man. Violent leaders like this are always in the center of the story. Dictators like this, they draw the circle for the story. Dangerous, corrupt people, they stand right in the middle of the story. The story will always be about them. The leader takes care of self first. No matter how many freshly born babies we have to kill to make our point. That boy Jesus will become the grown-up Jesus then who says love your enemies and turn the other cheek and walk the extra mile and give them their, your coat and work for peace every day of your life. If Herod is not king, oh my word, the story changes. We come to worship during Advent some people say we come to worship to avoid the politics of our world and our country. Well, I would like to tell you this morning that's actually not the story of Jesus. We come to worship to get clear on the politics of our world. We come to worship to get clarity on the politics of the day. We come here to get clear on the powers claiming our lives. We come here to recognize bullies and oppressors and to reorient ourselves to a God who loves in freedom and will not stop till we're all free. This is why we come to worship. And during Advent, we especially come to look into the darkness and call it by its name. We look into the darkness, we look at the fractured world, we tell the dark world, we tell the Herod rulers of the world, you do not own this story. We are waiting for the light. We've been celebrating Advent in the La Sierra University Church for about 20 years, and I remember the first year we lit candles and we officially called it Advent and how we had to talk a few of us down off the ledge because we were sure we were doing some Catholic thing. Pagan, what are we doing? Seventh-day Adventists. For about 20 years, we've been lighting candles and taking seriously that these weeks leading up to Christmas are not actually Christmas Day. Oh, the baby will be born on December 24, 25, and we'll worship that day too. But between now and then, we look into our crack and fractured and dark world, crack, fractured, dark lives, and we tell the truth about reality. 
Advent, this Latin word that means arrival or coming. Advent is for truth-telling, that we all long to be well. We long to be well. We long for a time when all are well. This is why we have La Sierra Academy. This is why your parents and grandparents and churches pay money and make these commitments and invest alongside of you to study at La Sierra Academy because we believe it's worth studying someplace where people will tell you the other story. That in the world, power looks like something, but in the story of Jesus, power looks like something else. So day by day by day, your teachers reinforce the other story that comes from Jesus. One could think that in reading Matthew 2, that Herod is really the star of this story. He scares the whole city, the Bible says. Who's left out of the whole city? They all seem to be afraid. Herod, he didn't make any of the songs we sang today, did you notice? Go home and look at your nativity sets. I'm pretty sure you don't have a King Herod in the stable. It's the kind of part of the story we just step aside from, right? Let's just distract ourselves. Let's just do something different. When I walked into the living room last Sunday, we'd come home from the weekend away. My adult daughter is flipping channels. I, she lands on a movie, a Christmas movie. I look up, I said, please don't. Please don't make me watch a Hallmark movie. Come on. She's like, Mom. I'm like, stop it, you're a grown-up. Come on, just one, they're, they're fun. What's fun about this? They're all the same. Like, here's a pretty white boy, and here's a pretty brunette girl, and then they're, they're going to eat candy and fall in love, and the fake snow's going to come down, and mom. Okay, church, these are the plots of Hallmark movies. Are you ready? Plot number one, deceased parent... <laughs> These are really the plots. Deceased parent leads to another parent needing help from a child, which will lead to a love, lead to a love connection. That's a Hallmark movie. Here's a second plot of a Hallmark movie. An overworked child plans to skip Christmas, gets fired, must return to his or her parents' home, which leads to a love connection. A big city man travels to a small town Christmas place to destroy it in the name of a big business. This will lead to a love connection. <laughs> a cold-hearted man hates children and animals and Christmas. And he's forced to care for children and animals at Christmas. And this will lead to a love connection. <laughs> a down-on-their-luck kind of person receives a house or a piece of land from a distant relative, but so does the real estate developer in that little town, and they don't see eye to eye, but this will lead to a love connection. A bad attitude, non-Christmas person. Got that? A bad attitude, non-Christmas person reunites with an old flame through very unlikely circumstances, and this will lead to a what? A love connection. We've got one more. A person going through a bad breakup must also keep that breakup from their parents, which leads to hiring someone to play their love interest for Christmas dinner. This will lead to a, a love connection. <laughs> Sick. 
So we watch stuff like that. Or we quibble about these stories. It's not really three. There's not really three kings in this story. The story doesn't say three kings. It says three gifts. They're not actually kings. They're probably magi. They're probably wise. They're probably scholar. They're probably really intelligent. They're probably, because you shouldn't call them kings. You should call them magicians from the east. And by the way, Jesus isn't actually born in a stable. I read an article this week, true. Jesus isn't actually born in the stable. The archaeologists and the Greek scholars and the Septuagint scholars are now telling us, but shh, don't tell the church because they can't handle it. I read a blog with a group of pastors. Well, I can't tell my church Jesus wasn't born in a stable. We're going to sing away in the manger on Christmas Eve. This is what we do. Because the King Herod thing is heavy. Herod is taking up all the oxygen in the story. This week in the nation's capital, a George Washington University Law School professor, Jonathan Turley, told our nation that it was actually Alexander Hamilton who said, described his times in America as times everyone lived in agitated passion. That the framers of our democracy who wrote the Constitution were not writing for 2020, times like these, they were writing they were, not, they were writing in times like theirs. Not writing for times like these, but in times like these. Is that clear? The Bible stories are just like that. They're not written for times like these. They're written in times like these. What's happening with Herod and the people is what happens with us today. It's a common story that darkness seems to eat up all of the oxygen in the room. Everyone is searching for something. So please watch your Hallmark movies. Everyone is searching for something. You be, you be whatever generation, the silent generation, the boomers, the Xers, the millennials, the Zs, the gen alpha. Everyone is searching for something, whether you're surfing, searching for authentic, real, truthful people in your lives or you're searching for a handicapped spot at Costco. One is not more relevant than the other. Everyone's searching because the Herods are taking up all the oxygen in the story. What's taking up all the space in your life? What's taking up all the space in your life, teenagers? Is it school? Is it the banquet on December 10? Did I hear a truth? Is it what we wear? Is it what we tell the messages we tell ourselves about our bodies? Is it our relationships? Is it our studies? Is it our college applications? Is it our parents who are arguing in our homes? Is it our parents who actually just broke up? Is it our grandma who really did just die? Is it our mental health that's really not that healthy anymore? Is it that, is it that depression is a real thing? Is it that we really do struggle with our identity and feeling at home in our own body? What's taking up all the space in your stories? I am sorry when adults say to you, it's not that bad. Because we've forgotten that it is that bad. If I'm depressed, I can't pull myself up into God's story on my own. I'm waiting for Jesus this holiday. What's taking up all the space in your story? 
What's taking up all the space in your story, church? Who has the oxygen in your house and in your places of work and in our communities? This Advent, we're facing darkness by truth-telling. This is really what our world is like. In 2017, the Oxford Dictionary added some new words. One of the words they added was actually a phrase, come to Jesus. Like a come to Jesus moment. It means the phrase is popular enough, used enough, that we actually need to put it in the dictionary because we're saying this around town and in our homes and in the workplace. And come on, let's have a come to Jesus means let's get clear. Come on. Come to Jesus also means an encounter, something that results in an intentional and significant shift in our thinking, a shift in our living. Come to Jesus moments. Turns out we're waiting for those during Advent when the world is dark. And we don't have answers for everything going on in our country today. So we make intentional choices like lighting Advent candles and we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, whether here or at your homes, scattered all around the communities, and we gather for potluck today. One of the tasks we'll make is to create 500 of these backpacks that are for homeless youth scattered all around Riverside. We're partnering with Operation Safe House, with the Department of Social Services here. When they wanted 500 backpacks made, they called your church and said, would you help? Inside, there's a blanket, and there are gloves, and, and there are shampoo and toothbrush and and after potluck today we make 500 of these and on the outside of the bag it says La Sierra University Church be well because on a few days in January we'll join the city as we walk around the community and we count teenagers who don't have a home and when we find a teenager on the street without a home we're going to give them a backpack while we do the interview and try and offer shelter and safety. I had a guest from another country ask me a few weeks ago, could you tell me again what it is about the people in your streets who don't have places to sleep or a place to go? And why is it that the cats and the dogs get places to sleep but not the people? Real question from a person in a different part of the world. Why is the Cats and the dogs get a place to sleep before the refugees and the growing homeless population in our country and our city in particular, teenagers, children, and women. We cannot solve all of this today. We can look Advent in the face. We can look darkness in the face. And we can do one next right thing. Who's taking up all the oxygen in your story, church? And when and where will be your come to Jesus this Advent? Amen.